0: name Amen you may be seated Well good morning fam if you're a, if you're a visitor, we're really glad that you're here you uh, I'm Ronnie, one of the pastors here. Good to be with you. Uh, if you're here today and today's your first day, you are catching us at the very last sermon in the book of Hebrews we have, I think this is my 14th sermon in Hebrews. And uh, so we're going to be studying chapter 13. It's going to be great. So let me, um, let me see if, if you'll let me just use the first part of this introduction to kind of r- remind us what we've learned so that we understand what the last chapter <laughs> would be saying to us in chapter 13. So if you'll remember, the original audience who first received this were a group of people who professed to follow Jesus. But very unexpectedly, uh, incredible opposition and oppression towards Christian began to melt. And the pressure was so intense that many people were considering opting out of Christianity, leaving and just going back to what they were familiar with in Judaism. This is what they, Most of them had come out of that and they were like, let me just go back there. It's not so painful. And so um, these people, their, their reputations, their fortunes, even their lives were in jeopardy. And so they were asking really serious questions Do I really believe in Jesus, the Messiah? Really? Is Jesus worth it? And so, in response to those questions for 12 chapters, the author helps them to see the beauty, the majesty, the superiority of Jesus. Jesus is superior to everything. He is superior to life itself. And this same Jesus, here at the end in chapter 13, gives us incredible promise. In the final chapter, God says to us, we just heard it, this is in verse 5. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then he says, so we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man even do to me. Now, here's why this is so important that we start there at verse 5, is that his love, him saying, I will never leave you or forsake you, his love is the basis for our obedience. That is the motivation for our courage. God's love is the single most powerful agent for our courage, our obedience, and our perseverance. And if you don't understand that point, what I just said for the last 30 seconds, you're not going to understand chapter 13, and you might not actually understand the gospel itself. Because if you don't understand this, Christianity will look like any other religion in the world, any other religious system just with different trappings. Because see, religion has an order. Religion says, be good, be courageous, be generous, be sexually pure, so that God loves you. That's, That's the order. The gospel says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I love you unconditionally. Therefore, be courageous, be generous, be pure. You see the order? Can't miss that. So after 12 chapters of showing us what Christ has done for us, it ends with a few practical things to do. And I'm very thankful because I am not the most practical preacher around. Uh, But chapter 13 is going to tell us how to live. And not in order to win the right to be loved by God, but because we are infinitely loved by him. So because of this love, the author repeats this refrain. Jesus is worthy of your faith. Don't give up. Allow the enchanting love of Jesus to suffocate the pain of your difficult circumstances. And being enchanted by Jesus' love requires faith. Faith is believing that Jesus is more real than your pain. But faith, you guys, it's a curious thing. I know this. It is a curious thing. We have to have faith. We need help to get our faith to move from our heads, from our brains, into every corner of our soul. Because if you don't do that, I mean, what is it anyway? Is it really faith? If we don't get this faith into every part of who we are, it's not going to last. You won't persevere. And we see this all the time, don't we? Um, We have these beliefs. You and I, we have these beliefs. These things that we say, they're on our feeds, but they don't change us. Our beliefs, generally speaking, have no effect on our choices and our decisions. Our our lives and our decisions tend to look exactly like the people who don't even have those same beliefs. We all kind of look the same, except we have these beliefs up here. And the interesting thing is, and you guys know this. So many people have like given up on Christianity, have walked away, and the main critique is what? The church is filled with hypocrites. They're not wrong, right? They're not wrong. But you know what, in saying that and kind of protesting, you know what's really underneath all of that? You know what they're saying? They're saying, I just wish Christians would be different. <laughs> I wish their, their, their faith would actually play out. Maybe if they were different, then perhaps... Not, maybe people would be curious about our faith if we were. But as it is, we're seen as judgmental hypocrites whose lives are not much different than anyone else, except we have these faith statements and propositions. And so the book of Hebrews is going to give us a list of things to do, some decisions, some choices. And, uh, but you have to remember we're in chapter 13. It doesn't start with this list. It ends with this list. So you got to remember the order, and this list is going to do two things. It's going it's to teach us how to be different, right? It's going it's to teach us how to be pilgrims. Remember last week we talked about the metaphor that the author uses, that we're all on this pilgrimage, and it's going to be completed in the heavenly city, and uh, this, this list is going to teach us how to carry on, right, as, as we make this really difficult journey in this life. It's also going to help us move our beliefs from here all the way to here, to our hearts, Sometimes we call this spiritual disciplines. A spiritual discipline is just a practice that we use to incarnate our faith in really uh, everyday ways, practical ways. So that's what we have today. We're going to learn about the spiritual discipline called hospitality. Uh, We have our work cut out for us because hospitality is not acting like Martha Stewart, right? Like that's what we all think it is, right? Uh, That's not what it is. Um, It's not about making a nice meal for your friends or just having them hang out with you. It's deeper than that. And we're going to see this shortly, but hospitality is evidence of what we really believe about Jesus. And it touches, like, every part of who we are. How so? Hospitality, in short, is a radical concern for the other. And this concern had implications for how we think about sex, how we think about money, and how we think about service. So we're on a journey to the heavenly city. As pilgrims, we need hospitality. We need to receive it, and we need to give it. And hospitality is going to move our faith from our brains to our hearts, and it's going to train our bodies to clasp to Jesus when the heat of this life gets turned up on us and it gets hard. We need it. So with that, let me begin by locking in, dialing in a little bit more into hospitality. Since this sermon's going to be about hospitality, and since I'm convinced we don't really know what that is, we need to like, understand what it is. So here we are. Um, let me just say one more thing at the outset. Hospitality is not something we do so that God is happy with us. All right? Are we all clear? It's... It's something actually we have to do so that we can experience God's love for us. I'm going to repeat that a million times because we're a bunch of legalists around here, right? We we want a rule to follow. I'm not going to give you a rule. I don't want you to like point to your hospitality on the day of judgment when you're before God and you have this resume and you're just pointing to hospitality. I don't want you to do that. I want you to point to Jesus and only Jesus. But it's a way of teaching our hearts to enjoy and experience Jesus. That's it. So what is this biblical view of hospitality? Well, in ancient cultures, hospitality was this really important virtue. Well, how come? In ancient times, travel was extremely rare and extremely dangerous. Very few people traveled like we do. They didn't have, like, you know, their Instagram just taking pictures of every place they were ever— Visited with their food, with their plates of food. Right? They didn't. They just wanted a thing. No one traveled. Very few people did. But on rare occasions, if you had to travel, you needed hospitality. So, like today, if we're traveling, we just call up some friends in the city that we're going to, or we check out a hotel, something like that. Uh, there were virtually no hotels in the ancient world, and the ones that did exist were. Sh- really uh, bad reputations, let's just put it that way. And certainly people didn't have friends in every city. Like, hey, I'm going to be in town. Can I, can I grab your basement? Like, that wasn't a thing. So what did you do? This is what you did. A traveler would be on their journey and they'd see on the horizon a city. And They'd go to the city gates there and then they would wait. They would wait until a person from the city approached them and invited them into their house. Then the host, Would take care of them by washing their feet, by providing a banquet for them, and then most of all, giving them rest and security in the walls of their home. Now that was practiced in virtually every ancient Near Eastern culture. But here's the thing. When God made a covenant with Israel, he took that principle and he made it even more profound. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 17, let me read this for you. This is what God says. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt." So God makes hospitality like a part of the covenant. And did you notice the basis? He says, you must radically love strangers because you yourself were a stranger, an alien, a sojourner in Egypt. That's who you were. Pay it forward kind of thing. So by being generous with strangers, they were remembering how God was generous with them. So this isn't just about doing good deeds. This is about them rehearsing God's grace and mercy towards them. It kept them, their their hospitality kept them connected to their Lord. That's the principle behind hospitality. Now, before I go any further, let me just remind us, Hebrews is written to people who are being tortured and oppressed for their loyalty to Jesus. And so, and, and the author is saying, hey, don't give up. Like, don't give up. I know, it's, I know there's heat on you right now. Don't give up. And so you and I are asking, all right, got it. So what does hospitality have to do with those guys? And here's what. In the face of pain, that audience, they had to be absolutely convinced that the Lord was radically concerned for them. That's the type of faith necessary to keep them from walking away From Jesus. And so by practicing hospitality, they're moving their faith from their head to their hearts. It's giving them courage. It's rehearsing God's love towards them as they're doing it to others. And that's the point. Do you want your faith? Do you want to live it out in this courageous way? Especially like when you're in the middle of injustice or when you're misunderstood or tragedy then, in that moment, have a radical concern for other people. And if you do, the author is saying, Jesus will be more real than your pain. Let's examine this passage closely because we want to see some practical expressions of this. So the first, verses 2 and 3, the first expression of this radical concern is loving care to strangers and prisoners. Look at verse, it says, Do not this is verse two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Verse three, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So let me let me unpack just a few things. Verse two. The author is referencing a story in Genesis chapter 18 where Abraham and Sarah hosted these three men. They go out, they see these three men, they invite them in, they wash their feet, they, they refresh them with water, they give them, give them a morsel of bread. And the Lord's really pleased. It turns out those three men were angels. Abraham and Sarah had no idea. The Lord was so pleased with them. Then verse three of Hebrews The author tells the original audience to care for prisoners and those who have been mistreated. Now, remember the audience. You got to remember these guys, this original audience, they all knew people in jail. They all had friends who were beaten and put in jail for their faith and loyalty to Jesus. There are actually several ancient accounts of Christians who would volunteer and willingly put themselves in jail with their friends to keep them company especially the friends who had been wrongfully jailed. So jails back then were primitive. So the prisoners were dependent on people for food. So the state, Rome didn't just provide three meals a day and cable TV, right? That's not how jail worked back then. They literally were just in jail and they needed friends. They needed the mercy of another to come and bring them food regularly so they didn't starve in jail. And so that's what they did. And so that the the care that Christians were known to, uh, known for forgiving care to these prisoners, absolutely caught the attention of the pagans. I mean, they could hardly believe how Christians radically loved prisoners. And, and the thing is, is it didn't, this wasn't just a benefit for the prisoner. It was, bene, it was a benefit to the giver. Their faith was strengthened as they were being used by the Lord. Well, how so? Pay attention to that phrase. It says, some people entertained angels without knowing it. I read this commentary by this guy named William Lane. He said, the author is assigning uh, to this hospitality a kind of sacramental quality. What does that mean? What's a sacrament? Well, in our tradition, we have two sacraments, baptism, communion. So with sacraments, we use things like water, bread, wine, things that are very ordinary. But when those common, ordinary things are dedicated to the Lord, the Lord uses them in this really powerful way. And so a very common, ordinary thing, like caring for strangers and caring for prisoners, it, trans- it was transformed into this powerful agent to get God's power and God's grace inside of you. You see that? In the same way we think, though, the bread and the wine gets it inside of us. That's what it's doing. It's getting God's grace in them as they care. It's strategic hospitality. When we practice radical concern for other people, we become conduits of God's power. God uses it. God's power flows through us as we are just being faithful and caring for others. And because we're being used by the Lord, our faith is being strengthened in that moment. Can you see how that works? Are y'all following this? So like, imagine a guy who's, who's doubting, right? He's plagued with doubts. He's considering walking away. The cost is high. So that same person goes to a friend who's in jail, right? What, brings him some food. That friend is in jail precisely because they love Jesus. That's what got him there. So there he is, the friend, the one with doubts, helping that one. So the person who has all those doubts as he's comforting the person in jail, I promise you, their radical concern for their friend is gonna change their doubts into courage. Like the courage of the one in jail, their love, their service of them is doing, it's getting God's grace back into the doubter, right? Hospitality strengthened the faith their own faith as God's power flowed through them. That's how it works for all of us too, Denver Prez. Like, do you have doubts? Are you lukewarm? I mean, have you ever ever asked, well, what's the point? Are you considering giving up? Try being radically concerned for others. Try it. Hold an orphan baby in your arms. Do it. It will change you. But try selfishness, you'll get what what you want, but you'll be miserable. When I uh, went to Africa, I was in a a region that was known for having uh, an an, an elevated number of AIDS, HIV rates in this particular sector that I was in. And so I I must have held hundreds of babies in my arms. Probably every third child uh, was probably sick with HIV Or malaria, Uh, I prayed over these babies, I held them. Guess what happened? Guess what happened? My faith was strengthened. I was the recipient. It changed me. God used me to help them, but my concern for them is actually what, what went back into me to strengthen me. And that's how this works. We're not trying to make God love us with our good deeds. We're trying to learn to experience his love while we're on this sacred journey to the heavenly city, you see. We can do this. Denver Press, we can do this. We don't don't have to go to Africa. Just look for brothers and sisters who are hurting in this church, who are having a hard time of it, who are struggling. Look for them and then do this. Cancel everything on your schedule and just be with them. Just cancel your schedule and just sit with them. Minister to them, invite them into your home. People want to be known. You don't have to be Martha Stewart. This is not about being rich, it's not about having nice food to serve. Just invite them in your home, be with them. Be redemptively curious. Listen, listen, Christians show radical concern for strangers and hurting people because we were strangers, too, on a pilgrim, a pilgrimage. So, so what I've done so far is I've, I've tried to look, try to help us understand what hospitality in the ancient Near East is, then look at this first showing concern for strangers and prisoners. There is a second aspect to hospitality, and it's being sexually and financially unselfish. Now, now some of you are asking, like, what, what, what does sex and money have to do with hospitality? And That could, that could go bad quick. I get it. Uh, that's a good question, so let's go back to our text. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. It says, in the context of hospitality, it says, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, um, So let me see if I can't deal with uh, sex and money separately. Let me begin with sex. Uh, Well, let me begin with a little preamble. In our church, uh, we have a real variety of people here. Uh, Some of you are more conservative or traditional than I am. Uh, others of you are more liberal or progressive. I don't actually know the right words to use. All those words are so loaded and so confusing. I don't know what other words to use. Um, but that's a kind of taxonomy I'm using. And I know that you guys are out there because you'll, you'll pull me aside after a sermon, right? Or, or you'll write me the email saying, hey, you need to be a little bit of what you're not, right? Uh, let me just say, Denver Prez is incredibly warm and caring. You guys have been so nice. But I know you're out there because you tell me. Um, Sometimes I say things that are in conflict with the evangelical culture in our society. Uh, And sometimes I say things that are in conflict with the sort of progressive liberal culture in our society. And so honestly, that's good. Like, we do not want to fit in people's boxes. We want to keep people guessing for sure. And here's why. Sometimes the Bible, sometimes the teachings of Jesus make religious people really mad. And I mean really mad. Lots of blogs. Sometimes the teachings of Jesus makes secular people really, really mad. See, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. And listen, sometimes I read the Bible and it makes me uncomfortable and I'm the stinking pastor, right? But here's the thing. Our loyalty is to God's word. We're just gonna say what it says. Sometimes that makes us popular. Sometimes that makes us seem close-minded and small-minded, like we haven't read a book before in our life. Um, our job is not to please everyone. It's just to submit to the Scripture, not to the ideas of our culture or even our religious culture. And uh, we do that even if we don't understand everything that's there. Right, why do I say all that? Because I'm talking about sex. And we have a lot of opinions about uh, sexuality, So most people will look at the Bible, and they'll be like, you know, my Bible is so old-fashioned. It doesn't apply to today's world. It didn't understand our, our modern predicament. And here's what I would say, is that our modern selves is a moment in time, it's a frame, it's a mood. And it's not neutral, it is the product of this movement coming from the enlightenment. The enlightenment, I I don't wanna get too philosophical, but it did create these impulses towards Western radical individualism, which is completely foreign to the Bible. That's to say, right now we live in a time where we believe that our rights, our rights, our interests, our personal desires take precedent, are more important over against tradition, family, and community. So we have this impulse, all of us, to protect our personal rights, our dreams, and our desires at any cost. And so our view of sex is seen through that lens, that perspective. In our culture, sex is a radically personal, private act. The thing is, is the Bible says and teaches something very different. The Bible says that sex is a gift. The Bible says that, the, that, that sex is not principally about personal gratification. It teaches that sex is a nurturing and unifying practice to be used exclusively between one man and one woman in a covenant. And it's in those and only those circumstances that create human flourishing for the whole society. And so sex is not about the individual. It's given so that the community can flourish. And when we use it outside of that design, it introduces difficulties that actually reverberate and affect negatively the whole society. And so this idea of like, hey, so long as, you can do whatever you want so long as you don't hurt anyone, right, that, is not, like, that idea is not present. And and this is where people get upset, right? Sex is not about giving you identity. It's not actually telling you who you are. In our culture, sex is seen as this means to make us happy. And so, if you withhold sex from someone or restrict it, then that's tantamount to taking away their right to be happy. That's why this conversation is so touchy you're saying, well, I guess you're just telling them they can't be happy. That's a very modern frame. The gospel says that that would be a very individualistic and selfish view of sex. And Christians should not be selfish. Rather, they should show radical concern for others, for the community, and willing to give up their own rights for others. And so the text says, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all, And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now listen, because I know know that that line right there is really hard to understand, so pay attention. What this text is not saying is that if you are an adulterer, or if you are sexually broken, that you're going to be condemned. Because if that were the case, all of us are going to be condemned. We're all guilty. Many of us in this church are still in process, and we are broken, and we're really glad that you're here. <laughs> this is a great place to be known and to grow and to get better. Sexual sin does not disqualify us from God's love. When you read that phrase in verse 4, the words adulterous or sexual immoral. Listen to me. Insert the words, non-believers. That phrase is a code. It's a category of people who are not Christians. It's not describing just their behavior. To call people adulterous or sexually immoral was not an insult. That's not an insult in the first century. They didn't grow up with a Puritan upbringing. This is first century Rome, right? They didn't believe the same things about sex. Because listen, both Christians and non-Christians were sexually impure. You only have to read 1 Corinthians to know what I'm talking about, or the whole Old Testament for that matter. Right? Open sexuality in the first century was the norm in that culture. It was not taboo. Denver would have been considered very prude compared to first century Rome. In fact, it was even seen as Virtuous. Those words would have been virtuous. To, to, to go and be, be with a prostitute was seen as a religious act. So what the author is saying, he's saying, if you are a Christian, you've got to set yourself apart from that culture. Be a different category. You must be pure because Christians should not be selfish. That's it. Purity and unselfishness go together. So Christians should be radically concerned for others and adultery and sexual immorality were inherently selfish acts. Although it was totally accepted in that culture, Christians risked appearing sexually primitive in order to be radically concerned for their culture. All right? So purity was important because they radically cared for their impure friends compassionately. Are y'all seeing this? Now, Christians should take, then, us, sexual purity very seriously, not so that we can go around judging people who don't live up to our standards. If that's what you're hearing me saying, you're not listening to me. That's not what I'm saying. Christians shouldn't judge prostitutes. We shouldn't judge people who fail morally. That's not the point. Jesus didn't act like that. You shouldn't either. He's incredibly compassionate to broken, sexually broken people we're just taking sexual purity seriously because we're supposed to be a people who are radically unselfish for in the name of love for the other sex should not be about your own your own desires identity or gratification and listen if you think i'm just talking to people who are just like just talk like single or who are like sexual brokenness i'm not i'm talking to like even married people right Like, all of us have to retrain our hearts to see sex in a fundamentally different way. That's what the Bible teaches. The eminently quotable Tim Keller, he says, in the first century, the non-believers were known for being stingy with their money and generous with their sex. But Christians were known for being generous with their money and stingy with their sex. See that? All right. So that's a good segue to the second part of hospitality, money. All right. I am absolutely convinced that money is actually more touchy than sex. I am just going to keep my thoughts real brief because I'm going long here. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so that key phrase is free from the love of money. So in the same way that that sex was viewed as a gift from God in order to bless the community, so was money. So the church believed that everything they had, and I mean everything, was a gift from God, and they wanted to be a conduit in order to put that gift back into the community. And you have to understand, like, no one does this. Like, no one does this. I mean, who just gives up their money? Like, who does that? On what basis would a person joyfully give away their money? This practice of generosity was confounding to the people who are oppressing the Christians. Like They're like, we're beating them up and they're just generous. It's crazy. For those who don't believe in Jesus, generously giving away your money is the most absurd thing you can possibly do. Why? Because money has a way of making us feel safe and secure. And so if you start trusting in your money more than you trust in Christ, then when times get tough, you will walk away from Jesus in order to protect and pursue your real God, the God of money, you see. So the author says, don't fall in love with your money. It will kill you when hard times come and no amount of money can bring your loved one back. Well, how do we do that? How do we do this? I only know of one way. We give it away. Generosity is the only antidote to the love of money. And we should give it away to such an extent that it hurts just a little bit. We, we ought to be so generous that, that we kind of have to change our lifestyle just a little bit. Like, like it, 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 it's, it's leaning in on us a little bit. Like, well, maybe we, we take one last trip to the mountains. One, one less trip, right? Maybe, maybe we do something, we, we change our lives just a little bit. And let me just say, you guys, this is, um, this is really hard for both the rich and the poor. This is not, like, I'm, only, I'm not only talking to rich people. Uh, rich, it's hard to give away their money because, well, they have a lot of it. That check is big and it's a little bit breathtaking. And like every time I write a check, it looks like the amount of a, a flight, you know, every month, it's, a, it's an equivalent of a flat screen TV. That, that's a little bit painful, I'll be honest. I don't know what I'd do with 12 flat screen TVs, but I want it because I'm greedy, all <laughs> right? It's hard. But listen, I've worked with the poor, uh, principally when I was in Puerto Rico, and they will tell you, it's just as hard for them. It's just as hard for them To trust the Lord. The Lord loves them and will care for them. It's easy for us to trust our money more than we trust in Jesus. Giving away our money shows radical concern for others. So we shouldn't be selfish with our sex, we shouldn't be selfish with our view of money, and that is just the beginning of biblical hospitality. It's an attitude, it's a practice, it turns strangers into friends, it makes them feel welcome, it puts our resources into the community so that everyone is flourishing and refreshed. That is faith incarnated. It's moving faith from here to here. All right, I've gone a little long. Super touchy. I haven't said everything I need to say about it. I'll get the emails, it'll be fine. We all love each other, we're for each other here. Um, But let me just, let me end with this. Let me land the plane with this. Um, when you look at this particular list of hospitality, I don't know about you, but I like I feel a lot of guilt, money, sex, service, like all the things that I'm like really bad at, right? And I'm like like I feel alienated. I feel I can feel estranged from God. Here's here's what I want for myself. This is what I want for my children. This is what I want for you. Is I don't want you to have guilt. That's not what we're working for here. We want you to have conviction and even excitement. Remember, I started this sermon by explaining that this is not about God accepting you. Like if you're in Christ, you're accepted. And that is the motivation for taking these things seriously. But how do we know? How do we know that God accepts us? And this is why we have verses 11 through 14. Read those one more time with me. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. When Jesus died, when Jesus died, he got the opposite of hospitality. He went to the city gates and instead of being invited in and having his feet washed and him given security and food, he washed his feet And then he gets strung up outside the gates. And he hangs on a cross. And instead of having company, he screams out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? No hospitality. What it costs us to be hospitable pales in comparison to what it costs Christ. And because of what he has done, we are now the objects of God's love and God's hospitality. And now we are changed from strangers to sons and daughters. That's the gospel message. Do you believe that? Not not based on what you have done, but what he has done. That lack of hospitality that he received, he... We now get this declaration: I will never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. Oh, dig that deep in your heart, and maybe DPC will be this have this radical concern for our city. Big hearts for people who are different than us. Let's pray.